there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Today is Monday, July 27th, 2020. On this day in 1919, 17-year-old black teen Eugene Williams was murdered after accidentally rafting into the white section of Lake Michigan's segregated waters. His death sparked the Chicago race riot of 1919 and a broader wave of protests known as the Red Summer. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today, we're covering the murder of black teenager Eugene Williams and the summer of riots that followed. Now, let's go back to July 27, 1919. There wasn't a cloud in the sky that Sunday afternoon. A heat wave had taken over Chicago, and hundreds flocked to the shores of Lake Michigan looking for an escape. Families sprawled out on beach towels, set up picnics, and swam in the cool lake. But not everyone was laying out in the sun together. In 1919, the waters of Lake Michigan were informally segregated. 29th Street Beach was a popular location among Chicago's white denizens. The city's black population was expected to stay just across an invisible sand border at the neighboring 25th Street Beach. That's exactly what 17-year-old grocery porter Eugene Williams planned to do. It was his day off from work, and he and his friends decided to spend the afternoon relaxing in the sun. Around 2 p.m., the boys made their way from the sand to the lake. They were jumping off their rafts to see how long they could hold their breath underwater. But then the boys drifted across the invisible color line into the waters of 29th Street Beach. A young white man, George Stauber, was sitting on a nearby breaker. And when he noticed the black teens drifting towards him, he erupted into racist indignation. These were, as far as he was concerned, white waters. So he started throwing rocks. Eugene and his friends tried to dodge the onslaught, ducking under the water, but not all of them were successful. While some accounts differ, many say that Eugene was hit hard in the head. Possibly knocked unconscious, Eugene tumbled off of his raft into the water. Both black and white beachgoers rushed into the lake to try and save him, but they were all too late. Eugene had drowned. A black police officer, William Middleton, witnessed the crime. He approached Stauber and tried to arrest the man. 
But a white officer, Daniel Michael Callahan, intervened in the situation, stopping the arrest. The two officers began to argue. Soon, a few black witnesses approached and spoke up, explaining Stauber's unprovoked, fatal attack. Then, more beachgoers gathered round. Threats started flying back and forth across the crowd between black and white witnesses. Tensions mounted. The two officers saw things getting out of control, but rather than arrest Stauber, Callahan tried to arrest a black man standing his ground. At this point, the growing mob became furious. Callahan ran to a nearby drugstore to call for backup. And in the meantime, the crowd descended on Stauber, taking justice into their own hands. They beat him to a pulp. But Stauber recovered from his pummeling. Eugene Williams was dead. Around 5 p.m. that afternoon, Eugene's body was recovered. By now, word of his death had spread through the city. Thousands of black residents gathered between 29th Street and Cottage Grove Avenue to protest the murder and the cops' failure to arrest the killer. Police officers tried to disperse the crowd, but they were severely outnumbered. Then, around 6 p.m., a man named James Crawford opened fire on a group of police officers. One of the officers returned the fire and killed James Crawford. This was the second black killing in one day, and it only incensed the crowd further. Coming up, the Chicago race riot inspires a national movement. And now, back to the story. On July 27, 1919, black teenager Eugene Williams was murdered when his raft drifted too close to a Lake Michigan beach that Chicago's white residents saw as their own. His death and the police's failure to arrest his killer caused an immediate uproar amongst the city's black residents. By 6.15 p.m. that evening, the story of the murder had spread through white Chicago communities, too. But the way many of these white folks heard it, it was a black man that had killed a white boy. As the rumors and lies flooded the streets, so did angry white men. All across the south side of Chicago, they packed into cars with one intention to terrorize Chicago's Black Belt, the neighborhood between 12th and 39th Street. These white men were armed with sticks, rocks, knives, and guns. They threw bricks and lit black businesses on fire. They sped through the streets, shooting their weapons at unwitting black civilians sitting in their yards. Juanita Mitchell was eight years old at the time of the riots. Her family had just moved to Chicago. She was staying with relatives in the South Side and remembers the look of fear in her mother's eyes that July night. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, Mitchell said, I remember my uncle standing in the window and I heard him say, here they come, which meant the race riot was coming down 35th and Giles. He held the biggest gun I had ever seen. Many of these men had just returned home from World War I. He and other black veterans hoped they would be coming back to a safer, more welcoming America. 
but here they were, still fighting for basic rights and safety in a country they'd risked their lives to defend. By the next day, the city was in flames. Governor Frank Loudon called in the Illinois Reserve Militia for help. But Chicago wasn't the only city where black Americans fighting for equality were facing down violent mobs of white men. Eugene Williams' death sparked a series of riots across the country, from Tennessee to Nebraska. These riots would later be referred to collectively as the Red Summer. In Chicago, the chaos lasted for the next 12 days. Black veterans formed militias to defend their homes, families, neighborhoods, and rights. During the first week of August, these black veterans gained the upper hand. They broke into a local armory and took as many rifles and weapons as they could carry. Then they used the weapons to hold back a white mob in the area. The white rioters backed down. They realized the black community was now armed with the same quality artillery as they were, and they were no longer confident in their ability to strong-arm the black people. As a result, the dust started to settle. But not before 38 people had died. The majority of them were black. More than 350 people were reported injured, also majority black. 1,000 mostly black-owned homes and businesses were burned down. And there were dozens of black people arrested, while not a single white person ended up behind bars. The long-term fallout of the riot, too, took a disproportionate toll on the black community. As University of Chicago sociologist John Clegg put it, why do certain streets, certain blocks, remain these ultra-segregated places across generations? They have almost a physical memory of this long history of racial violence. But the persistent segregation wasn't just thanks to memory, physical or otherwise. Thanks in part to the influence of the race riot of 1919, racially restrictive covenants remained legal in Chicago until 1948. These contracts restricted where black people could buy or rent homes, effectively barring them from certain parts of the city. The segregated lines they drew across the city map are still evident in Chicago today. The flawed, racist justice system that refused to convict Eugene Williams' killer is still in evidence, too. A century after Eugene's murder, there's more reason than ever to tell his story and fight for justice. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more true crime, check out our series, Solved Murders. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. 
We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 